Well, again, church, I just appreciate you being with me. If we haven't met, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Faith Covenant Church in Farmington Hills, Michigan. And whether you are joining us on live stream, if you're listening to us on WRDT, or you're on our website right now, 4FCC.org, we're glad, just glad to have you here with us. Uh, as we begin today, I, I want to take you back to olden days, way back to 1983, which depending on how old you are, seems further back for some of us than others. But I want to take you back to the Australian Ultramarathon. The Australian Ultramarathon is a 544-mile foot race that starts in Sydney and is run all the way to Melbourne, Australia. Now, in 1983, we had an unusual individual show up to race that year. The typical racers are professional athletes. They are highly trained. They have sculpted bodies. They, they, they show up in uh, the, the coolest gear, brand new shoes. They have corporate-sponsored logos. Not Cliff Young. Cliff Young was a little bit different than the typical contestant. Cliff showed up. And, and the, the, the judges thought that this has got to be some kind of joke. Cliff shows up in th this baggy shirt. He's got loose-fitting overalls. He's wearing rubber galoshes. He's got a, a, a ball cap with the, the, the sun protector, you know, kind of things hanging in the back. The, Cliff is not the image. This is not the silhouette you're going to see on a gym shoe anytime soon, all right? But Cliff shows up. And he's there to race. And the judges think that this guy's got to be joking. And no, Cliff's serious. And so they put Cliff's name down on the ledger. They pin a number to his overalls. And he goes and he joins the other runners. Now, when Cliff is there standing with the other runners, people are beginning to wonder again, is this some kind of hoax? Is this guy really going to try and compete with these young professional athletes? Maybe he's naive. Maybe he's nuts, all right? This just doesn't make any kind of sense. But Cliff remains, and he's serious. No, I am going to run. Well, when the starting gun fires and the runners take off, it's just too much. People break down. They are laughing at the contrast between these clean, disciplined strides by these young professional athletes and Cliff's odd-gated shuffle. People jeer. People catcall, people laugh at Cliff. However, five days, 15 hours, four minutes later, nobody's laughing then. Nobody's laughing when Cliff crosses the finish line nearly 10 hours ahead of the second place runner. The, 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 the press is dumbfounded. They descend on Cliff in mass to try and figure out how in the world did this guy, this 61-year-old farmer shepherd, beat everybody else by, more than, by nearly 10 hours. And as they begin to interview and talk to Cliff, there are two details that kind of rise to the surface. The first one is this. As a poor shepherd who couldn't afford his own horse, Cliff often spent days and nights at a time running to shepherd his flock. And then the second detail that rose to the top that was probably the most important was this. Cliff didn't realize 
that the other runners in the race stopped to sleep at night. Cliff ran the entire race, 544 miles, five days, 15 hours, and four minutes. He ran the entire race without stopping to sleep. Now, I bring Cliff and his story up because Cliff's story exemplifies for us today's virtue. See, if you're just joining us or if you've been away for a few weeks, we are in the midst of a series that we have entitled Equipped. And in this series, we've been wrestling with this idea of, okay, how do regular people like you and me meet the challenges that we face in life and meet them well? And so we've been, in week one of this series, we looked at a larger passage of scripture found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, where the apostle Peter speaks to you and me about how we can meet the challenges we face in life and meet them successfully. And so in week one of this series, we talked about how in verses 3 and 4, Peter tells us that God's divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life, everything we need to escape the corruption of this world. In other words, we, we, we don't have to fall victim to the brokenness that surrounds us, even as we face challenges. And then we talked about how in verses 8 and 9, Peter says that we don't have to be ineffective or unproductive or nearsighted or blind. In other words, that we, our faith, it really can make a difference for good in our lives. And then in verses 10 and 11, Peter talks to us about, hey, you, you know, you can, you can, Make sure about your calling and election. You can, you can position yourself in such a way so as to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. And we said that, that, that Peter's telling us we can live this life in such a way that it prepares us for the next. And so the question that we've been wrestling with is how? How do regular people like you and me, how, how is God equipping us to live this kind of life? And we've said that's where verses 5, 6, and 7 come in. Where Peter says to us, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to your goodness, knowledge, and to your knowledge, self-control, and to your self-control, perseverance, and to your perseverance, godliness, and to your godliness, mutual affection, and to your mutual affection, love. Peter's telling us to make every effort to add these virtues to our faith because the cultivation of these virtues is the means by which God is equipping us for everything that we need to face the challenges that we do and to face them well. So each week, we're taking one of these virtues, we're defining it, we're looking at a real-life example of it, and then we're talking about how do we cultivate that virtue in our lives. And as we continue this week, we are looking at the virtue of perseverance. Now, when, when we say perseverance, what is it that we have in mind? Because here's, here's the thing about perseverance. Perseverance is one of these words that we like to throw around at church, but we rarely do we clearly define it. It's a wonderful church word, but what exactly do we mean by perseverance? Well, the word we have translated as persevere, this word literally means to abide under. To abide under. It carries with it this, the, the idea that somebody is facing a challenge, they're, they're facing some kind of problem, and, and they're shouldering the weight of that burden. 
And as they do so, they are committed to not giving up, to not quitting, to not throwing in the towel. The person who has perseverance is a person who has stick-to-itiveness. Like Cliff, they're going to keep running until they cross the finish line. Now, when I think of people who persevere, different folks come to mind. But, but here's, the th- here's the thing about perseverance. Perseverance is something that is absolutely necessary in order to, to see the kind of outcomes that you and I long for in the midst of the challenges that we face. J- just, if you would, stop, stop for a minute and just think through this with me. What's the number one challenge that you face in life right now? What's the number one thing that, that, that you're struggling with? Before we even think about, you know, who, who do we think of when we think of perseverance? What's the challenge that you're facing in life right now? That just stop for a minute and ask yourself, what's my desired outcome with this challenge? Like, how am I hoping this thing is going to end. How do, I wanna f- how do I want this to look like when we're finished dealing with this challenge? See, that outcome that you bring to mind, that's the fruit of perseverance. T- take Cliff, for example. The, the cash prize that he receives at the end of the race, the, the notoriety for coming in first place, that going down in the history books is one of the, the, the ultimate ultra-marathon runners. That is the fruit of perseverance. The desired outcome we have with the challenge that we are wrestling with right now, that kind of outcome, that will not be realized in your life or in mine if we allow ourselves to give up. That outcome is the fruit of perseverance. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of someone who, like the, the person that comes to mind for me when I, when I think about perseverance, the person who comes to mind for me is a young lady named Hannah. And Hannah's story, it's recorded for us in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to spend most of our time today in 1 Samuel chapter 1 as we look at Hannah's story. Now, as Hannah's story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1, it does so by highlighting that something Hannah has in her life that's absolutely essential if a person's going to persevere. And that thing is problems. See, if you don't have problems, you don't need to worry about perseverance, right? But Hannah Hannah had problems, and she had them in spades, right? All kinds of problems. In fact, as chapter 1 opens up, it highlights for us some of Hannah's problems. We read at the beginning of of 1 Samuel chapter 1 this. We read that Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah, who had two wives, Hannah and Penina. And that while Penina had children, Hannah had none. Now, all kinds of Hannah's problems get highlighted for us right here. First one being this. Hannah's first problem is that Hannah's barren. Hannah can't conceive. If you think infertility 
is a, is a serious issue, a difficult issue to navigate in our culture. And, and please don't get me wrong, it is. Right? But if you think infertility is a difficult issue to navigate in our culture today, infertility in Hannah's day and age was absolutely brutal. It was just brutal. For someone in Hannah's day and age, your honor, your self-worth, your reputation, and more, they're all measured by your ability to produce an heir for your spouse. In Hannah's day and age, there were few things that brought greater shame to a woman and to her life than not being able to have children. In fact, in Hannah's day and age, not being able to have a child was such a serious thing that it was considered legitimate grounds for divorce for a husband with his wife. If a man marries a woman and she can't have kids, he can divorce her. Nobody's going to think anything about it. Nobody's going to look at him sideways. That's a perfectly good reason for a person in Hannah's day and age to divorce their spouse. Can't have kids, you got to go. Hannah's first problem is she's barren. Hannah's second problem is that Hannah's husband, Elkanah, has two wives. Now, I won't speak for the other men that are listening today, all right? But gentlemen, you would be wise to say amen at some strategic points in the next couple sentences here, all right? I, I won't speak for the other men who are listening today, but I can tell you for me, after 28 years of marriage, I have found one wife more than enough to be getting on with. And, and the idea of trying to bring a second wife into that relationship seems absolutely insane to me. This is a point where you say amen, gentlemen, all right? But Elkanah, he does. He brings a second wife in because in, in his day and age, a second wife is a viable solution to the infertility problem. Like if wife number one can't have children, and, and you're, you're not sure, is this his wife number one? Is, hus is the husband, you know, are, are his trouser hives void of honey? Is this a problem? We're not sure. You just, you just bring a second wife in. And so if wife number one isn't producing children, you bring a second wife in, she produces pr children, problem solved. And so uh, adding a second wife to your marriage when wife number one can't have children, it's a viable solution to the infertility problem. But that's a problem for Hannah because now there are two wives in this marriage and two wives in this marriage lead to problem number three, a problem that anybody who's been married for just a minute could have predicted. A rivalry arises in, in the relationship between the two wives. It goes like this, right? Elkanah would take his family to worship and after they had made appropriate sacrifices for worship, he would give portions of meat to Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So here's what you have going on. Elkanah marries Hannah and he loves her, but she can't give him children. So Elkanah marries Penina not out of love, but so that she can give him the children that Hannah can't. And, and Penina, she has children. And, and so when they go to church after church, they basically go out to lunch after church. Elkanah honors her, makes sure that she and all of her sons and daughters have plenty to eat. But to Hannah, who can't give him any children, 
He gives a double portion. He gives a portion so large, it is the portion you would reserve for royalty. So on one hand, you, you, you have Penina, who's there as a contingency plan to give her husband the children that his other wife can't, and he doesn't love her. But, but here's Hannah, who can't have a child to save her life, and she gets her husband's love. Here's Penina. Elkanah looks at her too hard, and she gets pregnant, right? But here's Hannah, who can't have any children, and she's honored like she's royalty. And, and that little dynamic, it creates a little tension between those two women. So much so that after they go to church, Hannah, Hannah's rival Penina, she would poke and she would prod and she would harass and she would provoke Hannah to the point where Hannah would break down and cry and she can't even eat. And then to make matters worse, Alcana who in a lot of ways is a decent man. In a lot of ways, he's a faithful man. But he, he's a well-meaning husband who tries to make things better and, and, and he really isn't helping any here, right? He, here's his wife. She, she's so distraught she can't eat. She's so distraught he's, she's sobbing. And, and what Hannah does, she's there crying. And now Kana comes to her and he says this. He drops on his wife, Hannah, why are you weeping? Hannah, why don't you eat? Hannah, why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons ever could? And all kinds of ladies who, who just heard Elkanah say that, you're ready to just beat Elkanah right now. And all kinds of men who heard Elkanah say that are like, what? And, and here's the deal, here's the deal, guys. There is some truth to what Elkanah has said here. Yes, all right? Look, look. Moms, dads, husbands, wives, hear me out. In a marriage relationship, the relationship between husband and wife, that should be priority number one. The, the, the source of satisfaction relationally in the home, that should come from the marriage. The minute... Mom or dad, husband or wife, put a higher priority on their children than they do their marriage. The minute a husband or wife try and seek a greater sense of satisfaction from their children than they do their marriage, you're in trouble. Because listen, listen, those kids should and are going to leave someday. And if you've made those children a greater source of satisfaction or greater priority than you have your marriage, you're going to have this gaping hole in your life and your home when they leave. And, and trying to hold on to them after they leave, that will not solve the problem. That will complicate it further. So th there's some truth in what Alcana has said here. But, but gentlemen, circle up, guys. Focus in. Gentlemen, write this down. Just because something is true doesn't necessarily mean that it is a wise thing to tell your wife. Amen, ladies? Aha, there it is, right. All right. G gentlemen, I'm going to say this again. I'm going to save your life. 
just because something is true doesn't mean that it is a wise thing to verbalize to your wife. Here's what, here's what Elkanah should have said. Hannah, why are you weeping? Hannah, why, why won't you eat? Hannah, don't you know that you mean more to me than ten sons ever could? But that's not what Elkanah says. <laughs> and so Hannah has the problem of having, a, having just this well-meaning husband who just makes it worse. So Hannah, she's got no appetite. She's got no heart to celebrate. And Hannah, she goes back to church where she's just going to try and pray, where she's just going to try and pour out her heart before God. And in church, Hannah runs into her next problem. We're told that while Hannah is there, that a priest named Eli sees her mouth moving. He doesn't hear anything coming out. He basically assumes that she's been hit in the bottle. And so Eli comes down on Hannah with, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. See, Hannah's next problem is this. Hannah has a judgmental pastor. A judgmental pastor. And that may be the ugliest problem that Hannah has. Now, let, let's have a little bit of fun with this. Johannes, if you can bring up the, the, the picture of some of our staff here. Just for fun, on your live stream feed there, why don't you go ahead and fill out your connection card and let us know which one of our pastors you find to be the most judgmental, all right? And if you're like, I already filled out my digital connection card, that's okay. You can do it again. Just let us know which one of our pastors do you find to be most judgmental here at Faith Covenant Church. It'll be just a little fun thing for us to discuss this Tuesday at our staff meeting, all right? And this is the point in the live stream feed where my wife is going to look at me on the couch and say, how come your picture isn't up there, honey? This is the world I live in. So, but but th this is what Hannah's dealing with. She goes to church and the man who should be bringing her some kind of solace and comfort instead unfairly judges her and she's got to explain to this guy that you can pray without noise coming out before she gets just a little bit of pastoral care. So here's Hannah. She's in a, a polygamous marriage. She's unable to conceive. She's got this other wife who just keeps poking her in the most sensitive area in her life. She's got a husband who's well-meaning but doesn't do a good job providing any kind of comfort. And she's got a judgmental pastor. And for Hannah, th this is not like a here today and gone tomorrow kind of thing. We read in the text that this, multiple times, the writer tells us in chapter 1, this went on year after year. This isn't just a blip on Hannah's radar screen. No, year after year after year after year. The problems we've then been discussing, Hannah's dealing with this stuff. And yet, Hannah refuses to quit. Hannah refuses to give up. Hannah keeps running the race that is before her. Hannah perseveres. So what I want to do next is look at some of the ways that Hannah responded to the problems that she was up against. Because I would argue that Hannah's responses are what made it possible for Hannah to persevere. Hannah's responses 
are what make it possible for people like you and me to persevere. So here we go. Response number one. Hannah doesn't push God away. Hannah doesn't push God away. It would have been so easy for Hannah to do that. See, Hannah lives in a world where people believed, where people taught that if you're, if you're barren, it's because God personally cursed you. Now, that, that's not fair, and, I, and I'd, say, I'd even say it's bad theology, but that's what the world Hannah lived in. And, and while, while Hannah may not have believed God cursed her, Hannah had every right to believe that God let this happen to her. God knows she's not, not able to conceive, and God isn't changing that, so he let that happen. And you read the text, Hannah had every right to believe that God orchestrated that as well, because a number of times in chapter 1, it tells us that God had closed Hannah's womb. So Hannah has every right to be like, hey, God let this happen to me, God did this thing to me, and yet you never see Hannah you know, saying things like, I'm not going to his house, I'm not talking to him anymore. Hannah doesn't push God away. And, and here's why I think that is. I think Hannah had, had enough sense to realize her problems aren't going anywhere anytime fast. She had enough sense to realize, I am going to face these problems either way. And so I can face them alone. I can push God away and I can face my problems by myself. Or in spite of the fact that I don't understand why God is doing what he's doing, I can face my problems with God. And I think Hannah had enough sense to realize the outcomes that she wanted to see as a result of the challenges that she was facing, those desired outcomes were far more likely to be realized if she was facing those problems with God, whether she could understand them or not. If she's facing those problems with God, then facing those problems by herself. I can't explain to you why God has let the challenges that you are facing right now come into your life. I can't explain to you maybe why God brought some of those problems into your life. And I can't tell you, did he just let it happen or did he bring them in? I don't know. But I can tell you this. Those problems aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And you're either going to face them alone or you're going to face them with God. And the likelihood of you facing that problem and not giving up, the likelihood of you finishing that race and achieving the outcome that you desire, it goes up dramatically when you face that problem with God as opposed to when you face that problem alone. So Hannah's first response is she, she refuses to push God away. Hannah's second response is that Hannah turns to God in prayer. Again, Hannah doesn't give God the silent treatment. It is just the opposite. In chapter 1, we see that Hannah prayed. We see that Hannah kept on praying. We see that Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord. And, and as Hannah prays, Hannah is real. She is raw. 
She is unfiltered in her prayers. In chapter 1, we see Hannah is in deep anguish as she prays. We, we see that she wept bitterly as she prays. We see, we see that she is deeply troubled as she prays. We see, see that she expresses grief as she prays. As Hannah prays, these are not nice, neat, clean, Pollyanna kind of prayers. This is somebody, the pain and the frustration and the fear, she is just letting all of these things out in a real, raw, unfiltered way as she talks to God. If we're going to persevere, we need to learn to pray like Hannah prayed. We need the, the fear and the pain and the frustration the confusion, whatever other negative emotion that's welling up inside of us, rather than try and stuff that down, we need to let that out to God in prayer. A number of things happen to us when we do. I have a friend who's a Detroit firefighter, and Detroit is one of the few municipalities where they still go into the burning building rather than just standing on the outside and spraying water on it. And my friend explained to me, before they go into a building, they will get up onto the roof of that building and they will cut a hole, sometimes multiple holes, in the roof of that building. And he explained to me there's more going on there than just joyful, malicious destruction of property. What they're trying to do is let the smoke out of the house, out of the building that they're going to go into. Because they understand, if you can get the smoke out of there, you can see your way around better. If you get the smoke out of there, you're safer because the smoke will kill you just as fast as the fire. When we pray like Hannah prayed, when, when instead of stuffing those emotions, we let them out, it's like getting the smoke out of our lives. We can see the race we're called to run more clearly. It keeps those negative emotions from poisoning us. Not only so, but when we're genuine, when we're authentic with God, there's something about being real with him it draws us closer into relationship with God. When we pretend like it isn't there or we refuse to talk about it, that doesn't draw us into relationship with God. When we're honest, raw, real, and unfiltered, it draws us into relationship with God. And there's, there's a strength found in that relationship that enables us to run when others would quit. So Hannah's second response is Hannah prays. Hannah's third response is one that isn't seen as directly in the chapter. It's seen more indirectly than it is directly. But it's one that is so important. Hannah's, Hannah's third response is this. Hannah does what she can today. Hannah does what she can today. You read through chapter 1, and, and again, this goes on year after year after year after year for Hannah. And yet you see Hannah just living into the challenge that she's facing one day at a time. You, you, you never see Hannah trying to force things. You never see Hannah trying to, you know, you ever get the sense she's trying to get it all done today. No, she's just, what can I do with the challenge that I'm facing today? Let me do that today. See, here's, here's the thing. 
with the challenges that we face, many of them, most of them, they have longevity. They stick around for a while. And after you've been in one for, for, for a significant period of time and you look down the road and you see how much further you're going to have to live with this thing, that can be overwhelming. And you see how complex this, this issue that you're facing is, and that can be overwhelming. And you see the number of things you have to get accomplished before you're going to be able to cross the finish line, and that can be overwhelming. And all of those things can take us to a place where we just think, I can't keep going that long. I can't figure something that complex out. I, I can't get that number of things done. I just might as well quit. When we reach that place, it is so helpful to just go, you know what? That's all there. I'm just going to do today. What do I have to do to follow Jesus well just today? What do I have to do just to run today? We're not making instant oatmeal. We're not accomplishing a life's work in a day. So, so tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Let me just go after today. And I don't mean don't be forward thinking. I, I'm not saying don't plan. But, but again, you get into this for a minute. And it, as it lingers, you can look at how far you have to go and how much has to be done. And it can just overwhelm you and cause you to quit. If you're wrestling with that, just do today. And tomorrow, when you get to tomorrow, just do today. If I can string enough todays along together, I'm going to be able to persevere. One last response on Hannah's part, and then we'll look at some of the fruit that Hannah experienced as she persevered. Response number four for Hannah is Hannah hoped for something better. Hannah hoped for something better. Somehow Hannah had this idea that even in the midst of her problem, that God was with her. Even in the midst of her problem, that God was at work. And that God, that God could bring about more goodness and redemption in the end. Than so much goodness and redemption in the end that it would outweigh the pain and the sorrow that she experienced to get to that end. You see some of this in chapter 1 as Hannah's praying. In verse 11, we find Hannah praying, and Hannah is, is promising, God, you, you just give me a son, and I swear, I will dedicate him and his life to you. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, Hannah's just bargaining with God there, and there may be some degree of that there, but I think there's way more than that there for Hannah. See, Hannah's people, in the history of Hannah's people, you have this theme that keeps repeating itself. Where you have a woman who will be barren, and she will cry out to God for a child, and God will answer that prayer, and then that child will go on to play a significant role in the history of God's people. I think Hannah had that kind of hope. That God would do that kind of thing with this problem that she is facing. If we're going to be people who persevere, we need that kind of hope. 
And here, here's the news. We have, we have every reason to have that kind of hope. If you are someone who is following Jesus, you have been promised that kind of hope. Paul will write to us in the book of Romans. He'll say, we know that in all things, in good times, in different times, in challenging times, for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. In whatever you are facing right now, God is with you. He is at work. And he can do something incredibly good and redemptive through the challenge that you are facing. In fact, God can bring so much goodness and so much redemption to what you are going through right now that someday you will be able to look back and see how God has brought about more goodness and redemption, so much so that it will have outweighed the pain and the sorrow that you experienced to get there. So year after year, Hannah finds herself in this place where she's infertile and she's in a polygamous marriage and she's got a rival wife and a well-meaning husband and a judgmental pastor and more. And yet, Hannah refuses to give up. She refuses to quit. Hannah perseveres. And as Hannah perseveres, Hannah begins to experience the fruit of perseverance in her life in a number of ways. We can only talk about a couple. One of the ways that Hannah begins to experience the fruit of perseverance in her life is you watch as Hannah develops this deep, admirable character in her life. In Romans 5, Paul talks about how perseverance is one of the fruits of, of or excuse me, how character is one of the fruits of perseverance. He'll say to us, perseverance, you know, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character. We see character in Hannah's life, the kind of character where you look at a person, and you're just like, man, I wish I could be more like that. One of the ways we see character produced in Hannah's life is Hannah loves her enemies well. I don't, I don't know if there are, are too many more things that Jesus calls us to that, that are more difficult than to love somebody well who is a difficult person to have in our lives. Hannah does that so well. Hannah is, is she's barren. It is like this raw wound in her life and people in her life just keep poking this thing in ways that would make you want to respond in anything that is love your neighbor, you know, love your enemy well kind of stuff. For example, Hannah goes to church, and here's Eli, the man who should be able to offer her pastoral care, and instead, you know, he accuses her of being drunk. You don't see Hannah, you know, telling Eli, why don't you go take a long ride on a short donkey or something, you know? No, Hannah graciously explains to him, this is how prayer can work. I know you're a priest, you haven't figured this out yet, but I'm praying. Or Hannah has this well-meaning husband who just hits her with truth, thoughtlessly hits her with truth. You don't see Hannah hit her you know, husband up his fat truth-telling head. She's gracious about it. Or just think about Hannah with the other wife. Think about this. Year after year after year, 
Panina just taunts her with, with things like, oh, Hannah, did you hear? I'm expecting again. Hannah, wh- wh- when are you going to start to have a family, dear? Hannah, you don't have any babies yet? Don't, you'll get there, dear. Don't worry. Hannah, do you mind if Elkanah stays with me tonight? I mean, there's really no sense in it. What's the purpose of him staying with you anyway? Hannah, don't, don't get mad at me, girl. If you'd just given your man some children, I wouldn't even be here. How long is it going to take you and me with somebody like Panina before we're going to lay hands on them without the benefit of prayer? And yet you never see Hannah go there. Throughout this chapter, she loves her enemies well. There's character there. Deep, admirable character. Or with Hannah, Hannah sees, she gets to see God work. The hope that she has, that God is going to work something out for good, she gets to see that happen firsthand. We read in chapter 1 that in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because the Lord, because I asked the Lord for him. As Hannah perseveres, Hannah has a child. She has a son. A son who does amazing things. Her son is Samuel. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know Samuel is the leader who brings an end to hundreds of years of oppression for God's people. Samuel is the leader who brings an end to hundreds of years of faithfulness, faithlessness for God's people. Samuel is the leader who, who, who ushers God's people out of the book of Judges, which is just a train wreck for them, and into the monarchy of King David, their golden years. Samuel's life brings just immeasurable redemption and goodness to God's people. So much so that the redemption and goodness that Samuel's life brings to bear, it begins to overshadow and outweigh the pain and sorrow that Hannah had to go through in order for Samuel to arrive. She sees the fruit of perseverance because she refused to quit running. Now we started today with the story of a race. So we're going to finish today with the story of a race as well. The second race took place in 2015 at the Austin, Texas Marathon. You had a young lady named Hivan who raced that day. She was a woman from Africa, and she was favored to win the marathon. In fact, she led almost throughout the entire race until she got to the last quarter mile and with about a quarter mile left in the race her body just broke down just completely quit on her she couldn't run she couldn't even walk let's watch together how this brave young woman finished this race
across that finish line out of Austin, Texas. That a boy, Nathan. Fantastic work. Really Washington. Awesome. 70 years young. She's got a half marathon in every state and on every continent. every effort to add to your faith perseverance. Whatever challenge you are facing right now, don't push God away. Cry out to Him in prayer. Do this one day at a time, holding on to hope. Whatever you're facing right now, don't give up. Don't quit. Keep running. Crawl if you have to. But finish the race. Persevere. <laughs>